A Thousand Miles Up the Nile, Section 38. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A Thousand Miles Up the Nile by Amelia B. Edwards. Chapter 13. Philae to Carrasco, Part 2. When the sun dropped, we turned back. The valley below was already steeped in dusk. The Nile, glimmering like a coiled snake in the shade, reflected the evening sky in three separate reaches. On the Arabian side, a far-off mountain chain stood out, purple and jagged, against the eastern horizon. To come down again was easy. Driving our heels well into the sand, we half ran, half glissaded, and soon reached the bottom. Here we were met by an old Nubian woman, who had trudged up in all haste from the nearest village to question our sailors about one Yusuf, her son, of whom she had heard nothing for nearly a year. She was a very poor old woman, a widow, and this Yusuf was her only son. Hoping to better himself, he had worked his passage to Cairo in a cargo boat some eighteen months ago. Twice since then he had sent her messages and money, but now eleven months had gone by in silence, and she feared he must be dead. Meanwhile her date-palm, taxed to the full value of its produce, had this year yielded not a piastre of profit. Her mud-hut had fallen in, and there was no use of to repair it. Old and sick she could now only beg, and her neighbors, by whose charity she subsisted, were but a shade less poor than herself. Our men knew nothing of the missing Yusuf. Rais Hassan promised when he went back to make inquiries among the boatmen of Bulak. But then, he added, there are so many Yusufs in Cairo. It made one's heart ache to see the tremulous eagerness with which the poor soul put her questions, and the crushed look in her face when she turned away. And now, being fortunate in respect of the wind, which for the most part blows steadily from the north between sunrise and sunset, we make good progress, and for the next ten days live pretty much on board our dahabiyah. The main features of the landscape go on repeating themselves with but little variation from day to day. The mountains wear their habitual livery of black and gold. The river, now widening, now narrowing, flows between banks blossoming with lentils and lupins. With these, and yellow acacia tufts and blue castor oil berries, and the weird colaquintida, with its downy leaf and milky juice and puff-bladder fruit, like a green peach tinged with purple, we make our daily bouquet for the dinner-table. All other flowers have vanished, and even these are hard to get in a land where every green blade is precious to the grower. Now, too, the climate becomes sensibly warmer. The heat of the sun is so great at midday that, even with the north breeze blowing, we can no longer sit on deck between twelve and three. Towards sundown, when the wind drops, it turns so sultry that to take a walk on shore comes to be regarded as a duty rather than a pleasure. Thanks, however, to that indomitable painter who is always ready for an afternoon excursion, we do sometimes walk for an hour before dinner, striking off generally into the desert, looking for onyxes and carnelians among the pebbles that here and there strew the surface of the sand, and watching in vain for jackals and desert hares. Sometimes we follow the banks instead of the desert, coming now and then to a creaking sakia turned by a melancholy buffalo, or to a native village hidden behind dwarf palms. Here each hut has its tiny forecourt, in the midst of which stand the mud oven and mud cupboard of the family, two dumpy cones of smooth gray clay like big chimney-pots, the one capped with a lid, the other fitted with a little wooden door and a wooden bolt. Some of the houses have barbaric ornament palmed off, so to say, upon the walls, 
the pattern being simply the impression of a human hand dipped in red or yellow ochre, and applied while the surface is moist. The amount of bazaar that takes place whenever we enter one of these villages is quite alarming. The dogs give first notice of our approach, and presently we are surrounded by all the women and girls of the place, offering live pigeons, eggs, vegetable marrows, necklaces, nose-rings, and silver bracelets for sale. The boys pester us to buy wretched, half-dead chameleons. The men stand aloof and leave the bargaining to the women. And the women not only know how to bargain, but how to assess the relative value of every coin that passes current on the Nile. Rupees, rubles, rials, dollars, and shillings are as intelligible to them as paras or piastras. Sovereigns are not too heavy nor Napoleons too light for them. The times are changed since Belzoni's Nubian, after staring contemptuously at the first piece of money he had ever seen, asked, Who would give anything for that small piece of metal? The necklaces consisted of onyx, carnelian, bone, silver, and colored glass beads, with now and then a stray scarab or amulet in the ancient blue porcelain. The arrangement of color is often very subtle. The brow pendants in gold repoussé, and the massive old silver bracelets, rough with knobs and bosses, are most interesting in design, and perpetuate patterns of undoubted antiquity. The M.B.s picked up one really beautiful collaret of silver and coral, which might have been worn three thousand years ago by Pharaoh's daughter. While on board we began now to keep a sharp lookout for crocodiles. We hear of them constantly, see their tracks upon the sandbanks in the river, go through agonies of exploration over every black speck in the distance, yet are perpetually disappointed. The farther south we go, the more impatient we become. The E's, whose dahabiyah homeward bound, drift slowly past one calm morning, report eleven beauties, seen all together yesterday upon a sand island some ten miles higher up. Mr. C.B.'s boat, garlanded with crocodiles from stem to stern, fills us with envy. We would give our ears, almost, to see one of these engaging reptiles dangling from either our own mainmast or that of the faithful bagstones. Alfred, who has his heart set on bagging at least half a dozen, says nothing, but grows gloomier day by day. At night, when the moon is up and less misanthropic folk are in bed and asleep, he rambles moodily into the desert after jackals. End of section 38